I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, this is the last time I'll be saying Matthew 10 for a while, at least in terms of where we'll find our exposition and passage, because this is, these are the last verses in this chapter. And this chapter is a unit, as I've been sharing for weeks, that this is a somewhat of an instruction manual for how to approach the good fight of faith, the battle that we've signed up for and been commissioned to be a part of as Christians. We are soldiers for Christ. We are those who carry the message into hostile environments and ones that are sometimes welcomed environments where we're sharing truth and connecting with each other with the Word of God and talking about Christ and talking about life transformation. And sometimes we're met with uh, the hand or um, even worse, the fist. And it can be persecution that is either something you are undergoing or will come, or you might know others who have endured suffering for the sake of Christ. And uh, this passage is a commissioning for the 12 apostles as they were being commissioned and launched into um, a missions um, venture to reach their own people, to reach the uh, lost sheep of Israel. And uh, there's nothing like reaching your own family members. And it talks about how dicey that can become and difficult and even um, treacherous or jeopardizing uh, your safety if you go and bring the gospel and good news to um, homes and those of your own household. Uh, This section, as we've been looking at, is uh, our last section, but this whole chapter hangs together as a commission. It was the calling of the 12, verses 1 to 4, the commissioning, verses 5 through 15 of the 12, and then the cautioning, the cautions for the danger that would come as they went. And then comfort that was given to the twelve where um, the Lord Jesus would accompany these missionaries into their hostile territory, looking at them with intimate detail and love. And then a challenge not to uh, shrink back from the battle, but to realize that the gospel comes and it bears a sword when you speak it. And you're, you're losing your life to find it in Christ as you go into this battle. And then finally, verses 40 to 42 wraps all of this up with a confirmation. A confirmation. This is where the Lord Jesus is taking some time to say, I want to make sure that you are confirmed in your mission and in your, in your identity as a believer. A lot of times it's easy to get into a battle and suddenly become very, very discouraged in the middle of it. War is just a scary metaphor altogether. It's a reality in our world. Uh, War is something that's in the view glass of our own minds right now as we think about um, Ukraine and the borders there with Russia. We have no idea what Vladimir Putin is going to do. We know that many troops from our country have been dispatched and placed there and They're there for any number of reasons, known and unknown for what could happen, and we don't understand all of the all of the underlying agendas that are taking place. Maybe we do, but um, but war is sobering. Uh, The thought of loss of life. I've got you know several boys that um, are growing up in my household, and who knows if one day they would be called upon to uh, you know drafted into battle, drafted into a war, and have to do that for noble causes and out of loyalty to our country. But at the same time, it's always sobering to think about whether you enlist, whether you put yourself and sign up, or you are drafted. It's, it's, uh, 
is sobering. And this chapter is no less sobering or should be no less sobering for us as Christians because we are called and commissioned to go into hostile environments with the gospel. And the hostility is predicted. And we've been looking through um, verses like verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but I have come to bring... I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And it goes into the family dynamics and, and strife that can happen. With this, there's also guaranteed fruit, guaranteed victory. There's, um, there's the knowledge that we know that the Lord wins in the end. We know that no one can, nothing can separate us, not even death. Nothing can separate us from Christ. And so we know we're, we're fighting a battle towards victory. But it is a battle nevertheless. And I just mention all of that to say there are times in the Christian life and experience where it gets so hard, whether through circumstances, suffering, or persecution, where you might want to say, is any of this real? Is all of this true? Is, is the battle worth it that I'm being asked to go into? These doubts can enter into our lives where we become discouraged in the middle of the battle. And we begin to doubt And chapter 11, as I've talked about, is about John the Baptist. And he himself, known to be one of the greatest Christians that ever was born. Look at verse 11 of chapter 11. Truly I say to you, this is what Jesus said about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail. He's going to have his head severed from his body eventually. And he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's discouraged and he's doubting whether or not Jesus is who he said he was. Is he the true Messiah? Is all of this real? And Jesus' message about John is, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a commendation. You want to talk about confirming. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So beginning with John the Baptist all the way down to all of us, How do we get out of jail in our own minds in terms of ministry discouragement? How do we we conquer discouragement in our own lives to keep going? And uh, it's a real temptation. Well, the answer can be summarized in one banner word, one place that we need to go to battle and answer the dilemma of discouragement, and that is the word humility. Humility. We need to be humble. Humility is how we can see things in the light of Christ. If you're lifted up in pride, you're going to chafe at the battle. You're going to want to throw in the towel. You're going to want to say, is it real? Is this truth? Is Jesus who he said he was? Is he real in my life? Is this this message and ministry really worth it? But if you're humble, then you will be able to see this in the right light and find encouragement. I want to begin with a little bit of a word study. If you look at verses 40 through 42, again, there is, there is the words receive are here, and they're mentioned six different times in two verses. Let me read the text for us. It says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet Because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is confirming the apostles. The word receiving is the word decomai, which is a beautiful word for faith. And he's saying whether you are the messenger or the recipient of that message, whether you are the one who is the giver of truth or the receiver of truth, Um, there's a beautiful exchange that takes place. It's receiving, receiving the gospel. It takes great humility to see this as a high value in your life. It's giving the gospel so that people will receive it. That's, That's your job as a Christian, giving so people will receive, to receive. It's like Zacchaeus saying, Jesus, I receive you. Come to my house and have dinner. Come in my home. I receive you into my life. It's Matthew. Let's have a party. I have believed in you. Let me gather all my friends, all the tax collectors, and all the street walkers, all the people. Let's come together and let's have supper with you, Jesus. We receive you into our lives. It's, it's Mary who uh, followed Jesus into Simon the Pharisee's house and, and washed Jesus' feet and anointed his head. Um, these are those who received Jesus, we're all of those people. We have gone from private to public with our faith. We receive Jesus and we make it public. And Jesus becomes the highest value of of your life as a Christian when you're humble to live that way. The highest value of your life. As a child in a home, your parents are usually the chief influence of your life, whether good or bad or intermixed. Um, When you're married... Your spouse becomes the new primary influence as a one flesh relationship in your life um, for you singles or for even married people in the Christian family of God. Your best friends become a primary influence in your life, what you value, how you think, things that you'll share with them that you won't share with anyone else. There's intimacy and there's shaping that takes place in that. There are great warnings in scripture like bad company corrupts good morals. You'll become like who you hang around, who you confide in, who you live your life with. Well, faith in this context is receiving Jesus to be the highest influence of your life, the deepest relationship that you have. The one who will never leave you, who's always with you, who understands you inside and out. That's what faith is here. We're called as believers in the church to influence each other highly. Older women training younger women how to love their husbands. Older men training younger men in the body of Christ. Iron sharpening iron. Being friends that stick closer than brothers. All of this is to happen, but Jesus is to be chief in your life. He's the one who says, trade the American dream for this dream. The dream of being my missionary, my goer, my preacher. The one who serves for this mission because you've received me. And that mission is no second best. It's no contradiction in terms of God's love for you. It's the greatest exchange that you can make. It's making an exchange. Your life for Jesus. Your life for grace. Your dreams for his mission and ministry. That's what he's asking you to do. It's making this kind of exchange. I was reflecting on when I was a child in fifth grade, I think. 
middle school, I was really always up to exchanging things. I was always trading for something. We would have these, you remember the NFL pencils, those number two pencils? That was, those were hot commodities in fifth grade, and we were always trading them up, and you always wondered, man, you know, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right trade? And then I got the wrong team. It's like, oh, oh no. And you just have buyer's remorse for that, and you're just kind of, kind of bummed. Well, in the Christian life, you can you say, man, I, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I love Jesus. And then when things get hard and difficult and tangled up in your world and you can't see straight, suddenly you can have what's, what would be called buyer's remorse. You're like, was this worth it? Is this real? Well, did I make the right choice giving my life to Jesus? Well, Jesus wants to convince the apostles and us um, um, as we read this that we did not make the wrong decision. It was not a bad trade. This temptation of buyer's remorse is real. It's what John the Baptist, we're going to learn, went through. But how do we know we made the right decision? Well, you have to be humble. You have to make the kingdom upside down. Um, to go up, you have to go down. To be built up, you have to build others up, not yourself. You have to esteem Christ. You have to humble yourself under his mighty hand that he may exalt you at the proper time. It's what's been called descending into greatness. This is what John the Baptist, this is where his head was before in ministry. Remember John the Baptist, proxy for Elijah. He shows up, he's preaching, he's the forerunner of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says in John 3.30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's where you got to reset to. Got to descend into humility. I do this swim drill um, as part of some training I do, and it's called a descent. And every length of the pool, you're supposed to descend. And what, what they mean by that is it's like falling out of an airplane. You're descending. You're getting faster and faster and faster and faster as you fall. And you got to speed up into humility. You got to start here and drive down deep and say, I want to descend in humility so that I can see that the mission in battle is worth it. And come out of discouragement. Well, I, the outline is four descents into humility. And I'm doing it with these different titles that Jesus uses for the apostles. Four descents into humility. These are the titles of the apostles. First title is apostle. It means ascent to one apostle. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The you here are the apostles. He called them apostles. Whoever receives you, this is an apostle knocking on the door. This is Messiah's missionary showing up, saying, I'm giving the gospel. And he's basically saying, listen, you're an apostle. But all that really means is you're coming in my name. Now, admittedly, the apostolic age, the uppercase A, apostle, <laughs> they used you know, the Holy Spirit used them greatly to manifest all kinds of miracles and powers and authorities that we don't have. We're not apostles like that. But we are coming in the name of the Lord in the same way. And what these apostles were reminded of here is when you come and people receive you, they're really receiving Christ. This isn't about you. This isn't about you're coming in the name of Christ. How do you battle discouragement? You just realize you're coming in the name of Christ. You're not coming as yourself. When they reject you, they're really rejecting Jesus. No one can say, though, contrawise to that, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. 
No. If they believe the message that you're giving them and embrace Christ, they're embracing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. The Trinity is all in this verse here. Do Again, whoever receives you receives me. Me is Christ. And whoever receives me, Jesus, receives him who sent me, God the Father. We say, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, no one's going to receive Jesus in the first place unless the Holy Spirit is opening the heart. And so you have, you have the Holy Spirit who's opening the heart so people can receive Jesus. And when they receive Jesus, they're receiving God. This is the great exchange. I'm laying down my life. I'm receiving you. And God saves. God saves the one whom he opens the heart to receive. Really... You don't save yourself. It's someone who's saying, my heart is open to you, Jesus. I see you. The blinders are off. The lights have come on. As one person put it recently, I heard this, the stadium lights open. Like they, they open up the stadium. That's what happens when you believe and you go, man, I see you. And it was what the Lord started. He opens the heart. And then you're receiving Jesus saying, come into my life. It's amazing. And this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's work. The apostle is just the conduit. He's the one who's just coming. People see Jesus and they're willing to enter into this, this new life, this extreme cost to love Jesus at all cost. It's like links in a chain here. You see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and he's working through apostles. Why, why would people receive? Well, it's because they... They understand who Jesus is. Why would they reject? Well, John 8, 19, it's where Jesus, they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? We have people who reject and they wouldn't believe and they wouldn't hear Christ's voice. But then you have people like Philip who said, show us the father. And Jesus is saying, look at me. And in my face, you're seeing God because I'm God. And people reject and people believe. And that's how it works. The issue is always sin that blocks people from receiving. But the point of all this is to not take the battle personally. Don't take the acceptance of Christ personally. Don't say, yeah, I really gave the gospel. I really nailed it. You know, I was super clear. You can be so clear, so precise, so biblical, so compelling, such a salesman. And they just say, I don't have any time for this. You've made it clear enough for them to reject. (laughs) But on the other hand, you can sort of garble through something and give truth and lay it out there. And when the Lord is in control of that moment, they receive They say, I believe, I get it. It's amazing. God is in control of all this. You say, what does this have to do with us? Well, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this language. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Literally, as you speak for God, God is making his appeal by his spirit through you because you are in Christ. It's incredible. It's incredible to think about. We're ambassadors for Christ. I, in our pre-sermon time, one of the men um, mentioned that he was impacted by this metaphor. He was talking about ambassador in his country 
um, is more of a high, lofty office that might not characterize exactly what Jesus is saying here. Um, As an ambassador, there's a high um, sort of proxy relationship where we're representing royalty, but instead of thinking of ourselves as royalty, we're the representative. We're just just coming as mailmen, like being a mailman or a mail carrier. That's it. We're just carrying the mail. We're just giving the truth. We're just giving it out. There was a mail lady that came by our house yesterday, and she always survives our two big dogs. They bark, and she's not afraid of the dogs, and she gets out and like gives them treats and stuff. But, you know, they don't lay off all the way. And so we, it, it gets us out there in the snow engaging like, oh, okay, you know, thank you for the package. But, um, you know, a lot of times we're, you know, we're, we're kind to the lady, but we, we want the package too. We want to know what's there and what's in that. What, what does this mean? You know, what, there was great rejoicing when the package was open, and it was this or that. And uh, uh, that's how it should be. We should give the gospel, give it out, and just realize we're just the mail carrier. We're just carrying the mail, just doing our job. And when people accept or reject, we don't fall prey to discouragement. Mark 12, you remember the um, parable of the vineyard, a man planted vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a, dug a pit in the wine press, built a tower, leased, leased it to tenants. Then he went out to another country. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from it some fruit of the vineyard. And uh, they took him and beat him and sent him away and he, and he empty-handed. He sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully and sent another and they killed that person. So with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him and said, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so the owner said, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he'll come and dest- he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I read that just to say, look, the emphasis is not on your technique. It's not on who you are or what your task is or who you're supposed to share Christ with. The emphasis is on just getting the message out. Just get the message out. Faithfulness in evangelism is just getting the message out. You want people to stumble over Christ, and they'll either, they'll either believe through that or they will be broken by that. But you just want to get the message out. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the message. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with God the Father or the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with any of that. It's just getting the message out. It's like links in a chain here. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then working through the Apostle. And then secondly, second title, verse 41, the one who receives a prophet is because uh, a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Prophet. So apostle, here's the next level of descent, descending down to being just a prophet. Two aphorisms are here. You have one about a prophet and then one about our next category, but the prophet. These are sayings that the Jews would have said regarding, well, the prophet comes and you receive the prophet, you'll receive the prophet's reward. I think there's a melancholy sense of this. There's really no glamour in being a prophet, whether you were John the Baptist out in the desert living on locust honey, you know, you're, you're just in skins. You're, you're, just, you're just a prophet. I thought I looked up the story of Elijah who, who uh, came and he 
ended up healing the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. He was just a prophet giving the word of God. People esteemed Elijah back in the day. They made statues of, of him and worshiped him because he was the one that prayed. And for three years, there was a complete drought at his word. Well, if you read 1 Kings 17, none of this was by his word. It was by the Lord's word. He said, you know, before whom I stand, there shall be neither do nor reign these years except by my word. That was First Kings 17. Then verse 2, the very next verse, and the word of the Lord came to him. This was all the word of the Lord that was coming through the prophet. Verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith, that is the east of the Jordan. And then the word of the Lord came to him and he went, and he, and he went to uh, Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and he went to the widow, and the widow's um, gathering sticks in the story, and she's wanting to just make one final meal. And she said, I'm gathering sticks, verse 12, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die, because it was a drought and a desperate time. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, do as I've said, first make me a little cake, And bring it to me afterward, make something for yourself and your son. And he promises them that the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord, day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And he fulfilled that miracle. The son dies and ultimately he ends up raising the son, the Lord through him as he stretched out himself on the son. And then verse 24, here's the whole point. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. That's it. You want people to just go, now I know this is truth. Now I get it. That's, again, in ministry discouragement, we're just, we forget all about these things. We forget about the simplicity of we're just mail carriers. We're just prophets. We're just giving the word of God. And, and it's all about the message, not the messenger. Elisha's story in um, 2 Kings 4.13 is very similar with the Shunammite um, lady and, and her son. She's a wealthy lady, and he raises her. And it's all, again, about speaking on behalf of the king, 2 Kings 4.13. There were prophets who were predicted to be mistreated Matthew 5:12 rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you there's always persecution in being a prophet now there aren't new testament the new testament prophecy age is done with the closed canon of scripture but the picture of speaking for god is real in our own lives um, in First Peter 4, it says, whoever speaks, speak, speak as if it were the oracles of God. I'm not a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet, but I'm speaking the word of God. I'm just giving truth. Anytime you lead a Bible study, anytime you share Christ, you're continuing this role of speaking for God. There are people who faked speaking for God in Matthew 7, 22 at the end when in the Lord's judgment. It says, that people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They'll fake it. Um, Paul, though, in the New Testament era and age, um, was bringing the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians 2.13, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you heard it from us. Listen, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's receiving receiving. There's a temptation, I think, to 
elevate yourself as someone who believes more than you should believe about yourself. We're just conduits. We're just instruments for the Lord. There's been a lot of hero worship in evangelicalism and leaders that have fallen, leaders who have become so um, filled with pride, believing they're the ones building the ministry, and then they fall out and people are disillusioned by that. Perhaps Jesus is giving a subtle warning against that, just saying, look, it's a prophet and a prophet's reward. It's just brass tacks, plain and simple, meat and potatoes. So he's sort of indicting people for elevating a man there. It's wrong to do. It's wrong to do. In Acts 14, they elevated Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember that? They called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. Acts 14, verse verse, uh, 13 and, um, you know, there was a chief speaker there, and uh, Paul is a chief speaker. They're saying, we're going to worship you. There's the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city. He brought oxen and garlands to the gate, and they wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. And Paul and Barnabas tore their garments, rushed out, and said, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you the good news. Or we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. When I get overwhelmed in ministry, one of my ways to come back to sort of ground zero is just say, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just speaking truth. I'm just doing what everybody else is called to do to make disciples. That's all we're doing is we're just giving the truth, and just um, trying to pull ourselves out of buyer's remorse. I'm telling you, this is a common sin. It's a common temptation to want to throw in the towel. But we need to see that the reward is what the prophet would receive and what the receiver, somebody receiving the gospel, will receive. And that is eternal life. That's it. It's no different from the, for the, from the prophet to the receiver or believer. All right, here's the third category. It's a righteous person. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is righteous, a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. This, again, is getting at the heart of things. You're an apostle. You're a prophet. Fine. You're a righteous person. Every believer is a righteous person because we're not talking about self-righteousness. We're not talking about super-righteousness. There are people who appear to be righteous and they appear to be so righteous you don't even want to hang around them and the way they talk and the things they do or won't allow themselves to do. There's a lot of external righteousness that people put on as heirs of spirituality, like they are set apart and really great and grand and untouchable. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's humbling the apostles, saying, look, When they receive a righteous person, when you come in and they're receiving a righteous person, they're receiving the same righteousness that you have. Your righteousness is their righteousness. Every Christian has the righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Righteous people. Not talking about the flattery of telling someone how great they are. We're talking about righteousness that's the righteousness of the heart because God has changed your heart and he's clothed you with righteousness. When he looks upon you, he sees you through the righteousness of Christ because he's declared Christ's righteousness to be your righteousness. 
You say, well, how does that work? I know how sinful I am. Well, praise God, you're also clothed and protected by the armor of God that is Christ's righteousness on your life. So when you're in heaven, there'll be full integrity. There's no more sinning in the heart anymore. All of that's gone. It's eradicated. You'll ultimately be glorified. But you right now have the spiritual standing that is the righteousness of Christ. We have to acknowledge this. We have to see ourselves um, as righteous, not for our own glory or our own accolades or our own rewards, but just to say it is what it is and this is my standing. It's like when I get on a plane. I'm going to be getting on a plane soon, and I, I you know, I enjoy flying um, sometimes, and it's something we do here. I don't know anything really about how, I, I know more and more about how a plane gets up in the air, but I really don't know anything about that, and I don't know how it stays up there. I'm not afraid of turbulence like I used to be, because I understand it a little bit more, but um, really all I'm concerned about when I'm getting on a plane now, but we used to get on a plane with like six kids, and it was just concerned to have them all make it. Uh, But now I just am concerned that I sit in the right seat. And so I have my paper ticket or I have my phone and uh, usually my phone. And I, if you're like me, you're just, I want to make sure I get that right. I don't want to get in the wrong seat because if you get in the wrong seat, you're sitting there and someone's hovering over you. And there's, and then it's, let's compare tickets and let's go to court over who's right and who's wrong. And you just don't want to, you don't want to be wrong in that moment or have an attitude about being wrong. um, If you are wrong, What you want to do is see where your seating is supposed to be. And so you're investigating that, looking at that and seeing that. Well, as a believer, we need to um, cut through the awkwardness of our own discouragement by looking at who we are and find our, not our seating, but our standing in Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what justified is? That's the word diakasune, which is the same word for righteousness. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. We've been made righteous by God through faith. In verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace or this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Just to flip the script, when we spend time with people... Speaking of how relationships influence, we should be around people who are righteous, people who are growing, people who do um, lift us up. And it's humbling to do that. You'll be exposed for your shortcomings if you spend time with people who are living a righteous life. Not a self-righteous life, but living in light of righteousness. Okay, four descents. First, the, you're an apostle, but you're, you're, just, you're an ambassador. You're a mailman for the Lord. You're a prophet, but you're just... Receiving the same, you're giving the same reward that everybody else is receiving. You're this prophet, and um, you're just giving the message. And then you're a righteous person. We all share in the righteousness of Christ. This is what we all have. It's what we're declared to be. Here's the final level of descent. You're a little one. You're a little one. This is the point and final note of humility here. It says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I think that, I mean, the text here is clear to say that the messenger is the little one, is the child. That's what it means, a little child. And the messenger is the one who's given a cup of cold water. They've given the gospel. They've given the truth. And you've made a disciple. 
the one who's giving the cup of cold water, you could translate this as, that's the new disciple. Here's your water. You say, that's quite a reward. <laughs> the missionary is coming in, and you just you gave the gospel. You're putting yourself at risk. And what do they give you? They give you a cup of cold water. But it says that person will by no means lose his reward. Giving a cup of cold water, you know what that is? In this case, that's exercising saving faith. It's like receiving. I've received the message. I'm receiving the messenger because I received the message and I'm giving you cold water. You say, well, is that really a big deal to give someone cold water? What well, could be if you're in a desert climate and you're thirsty and you need water to continue? It could be like the marathoner who's drenched in sweat, who's just desperate for that quick cup of water to keep going. Um, it's where you're drained and you need hydration. You're parched and you, everything's going to shut down in your health if you don't get water. Really, the picture is this. As a gospel giver of the message, as a Christian missionary, as someone who's part of this task, if you, if you see yourself as anything more than just a child in need of water, then you're going to get discouraged. If you elevate yourself to anything higher than being a child of God, you're going to get discouraged. We are in complete dependency on the Lord. We're utterly dependent on the Lord. Children are dependent on being fed. We're little ones in the kingdom of God. You say, well, is this some sort of worm theology where we're just trying to like self-deprecate to make ourselves feel better? No, it's just recognizing what's real about your life. We really are just children. And that's where God wants us to be in our hearts. That's it. You don't elevate yourself, you elevate the Lord. Now we enjoy our lives, we enjoy things, but think about how much you love. If you've ever had a child or you've ever had a kid brother, a little brother or a little cousin or a nephew or niece that you love, um, how special is that? You love that child. You would do anything for that child. You would put your life at risk for that child, right? You would jump out in front of the car for that child. You, you love that baby. That's how God loves you, and he wants you to feel loved in that way. That's the point. An apostle, yes. A called sent one as a proxy, yes. A prophet giving the message of God, yeah. Righteousness of Christ, right gospel. My gospel is your gospel, right? I'm a little one loved by God. You say, is that a special title? It's significant to the Lord. Look at Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the posture of a believer. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one, listen to this, listen to the warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That person should be immediately executed if that person causes a little one, a child of God, to stumble, to sin, to stray from truth. A few verses later in Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, the angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Angels in heaven are 
looking at the face of God in heaven, probably through wings, but they're looking for the father's countenance to change just a little bit, to be dispatched to the aid of little children here on earth. That's the point. They're watching the face of God. They're before the throne of God, ready to be dispatched to help little ones. Matthew 25, 45, then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's the idea of as you've done it to the least of these, you've also done it to me. There's a intimacy where we are the body of Christ here on earth. We are his children. We are his missionaries. 3 John chapter, uh, well, 3 John 1, it's a one chapter book of the Bible. But verse um, 8, actually, let's, let's back up verse Six, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. They've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow takers of the truth. We're completely reliant, completely supported by the Lord. We're humbled through circumstances. We're humbled through these temptations. We're being shaped and, um, and, and stripped of our own self-worth, self-righteousness. Whether it's money or gifts or awards, those are never the goals in ministry. It's just a drink of water. And one picture, that one application of this is if you're someone who serves the cup of cold water, you're also using the gift of hospitality. You're a new disciple. You're a believer. Or perhaps you've been in the body of Christ a long time. Serving behind the scenes is an incredible ministry to have. It's not always the upfront prophet or the speaker or the preacher that is essential in the body of Christ. Um, Barclay said this, we cannot be all prophets and preach and proclaim the word, but he gives God's messenger the simple gift of hospitality and he will receive no less reward than a prophet. That's uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks, speak the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Wholly dependent on the Lord, wholly dependent on God, fixing people breakfast, washing their clothes, bringing over, you know, needs and supplies to people that need them just to keep them going in the Christian journey. That's behind the scenes ministry. Listen to about this young boy. There was a young boy in an old English town, country village, who um, had a great struggle because he wanted to be a minister, but he didn't have the money to do it, to get the education. But there was a village cobbler who took an interest in him and he had read wide and had done a lot of thinking and had himself wanted to be a minister But he took the mission of getting this young boy through um, Christian college and licensure to be a pastor. And in time, the boy became a young man licensed to preach. On that day, the cobbler said to him, it's always been my desire to be a minister of the gospel, but the circumstances of my life made it impossible. But you're achieving what was closed to me, and I want you to promise me one thing. I want you to let me make and cobble your shoes for nothing. And I want you to wear them in the pulpit when you preach. And then I'll feel them in the pulpit when you preach. And I'll feel you preaching the gospel that I always wanted to preach standing in my shoes. It's serving in obscurity. John Calvin, when he was, uh, he was this great minister, a great preacher. He was the head of a seminary called the Seminary of Death because people were being... Uh, They would graduate from seminary to be preachers, and then they would go be martyred for the faith. 
during that time. Well, Calvin was kicked out of Geneva for preaching the truth. And he said, most assuredly, if I merely had served man, I would have been poor, a poor recompense, but it is my happiness that I've served him who never fails to reward his servants to the full extent of his promise. This is the confirmation that comes through humility. Apostle, reduced to being a prophet, reduced to just being a righteous person, reduced to being a little one. That's who we are. We're little ones. This is the confirmation that we all need. It's what John the Baptist needed, and we're going to learn about that next time.